Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. confused when we're going through it. So Revelation 3, I'm going to turn there as well. While we're getting there, though, I want to just point out, if it's your first week or you've been coming a while and you've just kind of been forgetting, these letters that you see each have section breaks, and they're all basically following the same, like, uh, the same structure. So there's six main components that each of these letters have. I will read them just so you kind of can um, uh, follow along. We're going to be starting in verse 14, but the six main components or as if you look, it's always written to the angel of a church, which the angel is like the leader, the elder, the overseer, whatever. It's like the leader of the church. And then Jesus is typically pronouncing himself in such a way, like he has a good resume, or he's like, it's typically depicted, in, he's in, in glory, and he's like these words he describes himself. And then it goes to, I know, an I know statement, which is typically good in most instances. Like, I know the good things you've been doing, and you're doing amazing, press on, right? It's like an encouraging thing. Sometimes there's some reproof, but... Typically, it's an I know, right? And then he'll say, but, or I have this against you, which is the reproof, or the, we call it rebuke, which we don't use the word rebuke a lot, but it's like to teach and, and, and discipline in a certain way. And so he says, but this. And then he offers basically what we call, this is a big word, but an eschatological promise. Eschatological is like end times eternity, like uh, the hope that we have in Christ for eternity. He offers a promise of that. He reminds us of that reality, that this is just a very small glimpse of eternity and that, that we have to be reminded of that promise that Jesus gives us. And then the last thing he usually says is, the one who has ears better listen, which is uh, just a very classic Jesus statement. It's just kind of reminding the importance of what he's saying. So all, all six of those are seen in all these letters. And uh, in the last church that we're covering, the church of Laodicea, is how you say it, uh, is covered... All of these. So I'm going to read the whole thing through. Just You can grab out whatever you want, and then we're going to go through it piece by piece. So verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the following. So remember, John is telling Jesus to, to say, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have acquired great wealth and need nothing, but do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Take my advice and buy from me refined by fire, gold refined by fire so that you can become rich. Buy from me white clothing so that you can be clothed and your shameful nakedness will not be exposed. And by eye salve to put on your eyes so you can see. All those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me. I will grant the one who conquers permission to sit with me on my throne, just as I too conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a lot going on. Um, I would say this is probably one of the most well-known letters. A lot of people talk about being lukewarm. That's like a very Christianese statement. You've probably seen people quote that. Uh, and it's not necessarily saying what you think it says, and we're going to get into that. But before we do, I'm a big history guy. I love a good history. I love a good map. So we're going to put up a map for you historians. 
if you need a two-minute nap, now's your time if you're not. Um, this is the seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, if you look down at the bottom, it's Laodicea. It's spelled differently because Greek, you know how that works, transition to English, it's just different. And um, Laodicea was unique because it was situa situated really close to the Lycus River, which is like a big river in that area. You can show the second photo, kind of shows you the lay of the land. These are the ruins of Laodicea. And uh, down near kind of that white area is where the river is. So it was a couple, you know, it wasn't like right smack up against it, but very close. In fact, it was such a popular river that people would refer to Laodicea as Laodicea on the Lycus River. Like that was all of its name, which is very long and got shortened, obviously. But that was how incredibly important the Lycus River was, just in reference of geography. Um, and then the other, the other white, the giant white kind of piece you'll see, we'll talk about in a little bit. But the ruins are still here. It's very cool. You can go see it. I accidentally Google mapped it. Uh, and it told me it would take two days to get there. That was, that was flying and then, and then driving there. But it, you can see it on Google Maps. All the ruins are still there. It's really, really cool. Uh, the city and the layout. And uh, all these cities still have some decent amounts of ruins, some more than others. But Laodicea, at its time, first century, Roman times, which is what we're talking about in the Bible, was one of the wealthiest cities in their region. It was pretty awesome. It had three main things that made it money. The first one was it had fertile ground for sheep grazing. And so they had this special strain of sheep that would create black wool. That's right, black sheep. How about that? And it would make these really cool tunics that were very fashionable, very cool. And so everybody wanted them. And so they, they had the, this black wool that made them a large amount of money. Uh, they also had banking industry. They had banks. Chase Bank's first bank was in, I'm just kidding. Uh, JP Morgan lived there. Uh, no, but. Uh, but it, they had a massive bank. In fact, rich Romans would dream about like cashing their checks there and like living there. Like it was a very affluent area. Banks created a lot of wealth. Nowadays, we have banks everywhere. You can drive into a parking lot, and there's like a drive-through bank. Back then, banks were significant, and they had to have a lot of security, so they weren't just everywhere. So it was really incredible. They had great banking systems. The third thing they had was a prominent medical school, which once again, you didn't have medical schools in every town. This was a very prominent one, and they were actually famous for an eye salve that they would put on people's eyes that would help with healing and things like that. And so there's a lot of good stuff going on. They were so wealthy, though, they had a devastating earthquake in 60 AD, which is a couple decades before John's writing uh, this letter. But they were so wealthy, they just rebuilt the whole city themselves. They didn't even need any help from Rome. Tacitus, who was a writer for a Roman uh, his historian, says, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources with no help from us, which is incredibly rare. I mean, it's a very expensive to rebuild a city. And they're like, no, no, we got it. We'll front the bill. So Laodicea, a very, very wealthy city. Uh, however, it did have a weakness, and the weakness was water, which is significant. Now you think, well, you're by the Lycus River, but it wasn't like right there, right? You can't just, at this point in time, they wanted water accessible right where you were. And so they had uh, a problem with their water. They didn't have very good water. They didn't have very good location to pull it from. And so though it was an amazing city, it had a pretty significant weakness with water. Um, but what's also unique is there's more tension. We've talked about this for several weeks, this tension between the Romans and the Jewish people who lived there. And so there was, there was an imperial cult here, which was worshipers of Caesar as Lord. So that was like a big thing, right? Worshiping Rome itself and the emperor. Uh, but then you also had about 7,000 men, Jewish men, they have a recording, so more than that because you count women and kids, 7,000 Jewish people living here as well. So you have a lot of this tension going on of Romans, Jews, uh, and all of that tension. And then you have this church of Laodicea, these small group of Christians in this city. And there's just a lot of tension going 
on. In fact, by John's time, the, the church was just really not doing very well. It had really deteriorated. And, uh, and there was actually a letter that Paul writes to Laodicea that gets lost, which is a bummer for us, because it would have been very cool to read that. Um, but this is the, the letter we get from Jesus that writes to the church of Laodicea. So let's just dive in. We're going to go verse by verse. I'll kind of explain some confusing things, and we'll figure out what's the, what's the main idea, what's going on in this. So in verse 14, it starts off, like I said, to the angel of the church, and they ought to see it right the following. And then this is where Jesus gives himself a bit of criteria. He says, this is the solemn pronouncement of the amen, the faithful and true witness. The amen, it's capitalized A probably in your Bible, is really just him referring to the, the, the idea that he is faithful and truthful and valid, right? Like what I'm saying is coming from the person of truth, of created truth. And then he goes even farther and say, like, the originator, the true witness of God's creation. And this is a really powerful statement because really the Laodiceans will find out have been pretty unfaithful to following Jesus well. And Jesus is saying, hey, what I'm saying is, like, this is coming from the, the foundation of truth, of, of the creator of the universe. So you should probably listen. It's a pretty good resume builder, right, if you have that on your resume, like originator of God's creation. That would probably get you a job, I think. Uh, but in this instance, he's like, hey, listen to me. And he's kind of just letting them know and reminding them, this is who's speaking, right? Because John's writing this. And so this is who's speaking. And then we get into verse 15. This is the I know statement. Let's see what happens. I know your deeds. You are neither hot, uh, cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Typically... In the last several letters, Jesus gives like, hey, you did this well. You, you were doing this well. Like you, you gave to these people. You were strong through persecution. This is not a very good look for the church of Laodicea. It starts off pretty strong, right? Like, I know your deeds. I know what you've done. It's all bad. <laughs> not good. This is actually the harshest letter of the seven that we get. Like, he is not pulling any punches. And he's using this idea of water, lukewarm, right? And it could be water. It could be drinks, whatever. But it's this idea of being lukewarm. Now, most people, when they read this and when they quote this, they think they're talking about spiritual fervor temperature, meaning you guys are not passionate, right? If you were hot, you'd be passionate about Jesus. You'd be going out and doing crazy things for Jesus, and you'd be radical, and you'd be on fire for Jesus. Uh, and then the, the opposite would say, if you're cold, that you are like coldly aggressive to God. You're callous. Your heart's cold, whatever, right? You want nothing to do with God, right? That's what a lot of people take this to mean, but it's not necessarily what it means because it doesn't really make any sense. If you think about it, Jesus says, I wish you were either cold or hot. Why would Jesus wish that you were cold and not at least lukewarm? And some people say, well, that's the severity of it. You're either in or you're out. He doesn't want like half following followers. He wants like you all in or all out. But it still doesn't make sense that he would be excited about you being cold, which is aggressively against his own will and kingdom. And so what it's getting at is something a little bit different. And this is where those who really perked up when I talked about history and maps are going to get a nice pat on the back, okay? Because the history and the geography is incredibly important. If you look at uh, that, uh, the map, there, it was situated in kind of a valley, Laodicea was. But to the north, there's in six miles north, there's a city called Heropolis. And uh, if you go back to that second photo, that, the ruins, that white, giant white mound up north there is Heropolis. It's about six miles away. And that town was unique because it had hot springs. And it was, had such strong minerals in the hot springs that whenever they would flow over and eventually become lukewarm, they would harden, right? And like the water would evaporate and the minerals would sit. And so those are white pools. So you can show them the photo of the white pools, uh, which look beautiful. People like to sit in them. 
it's like you know healing. And so Heropolis was famous for uh, these healing springs. People would come from all around and sit in these springs. They'd make uh, chemical like um, uh, different medical things with these, and they were, so they were well known for their healing. Uh, unfortunately, you couldn't drink the water. <laughs> it would not be good for you. It has a lot of minerals, so many in it that it would literally like could kill you if you drank too much of it. So great to sit in, pretty for a photo, not good. And, and so this is the city that everyone knows of in Laodicea, six miles north. Then there's another city 11 miles east that is called Colossae. And Colossae was known for incredibly cold water springs. They were incredibly refreshing. There had been no level of cold waters in that area that were just that were as good as Colossae. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's almost giving them, I mean, they would know these cities. They're close enough in distance. He's saying, hey, this city has the hot springs. This city has cold waters, and all you've got is lukewarm water, which is historically true. They, had, they took from a spring that was just a, a little bit away from the city, and it was when the water came, it was lukewarm. It was just really no good. I mean, you obviously survive on it, but like, what's worse on a hot day than lukewarm water, right? I guess hot water, but in general, hot water has use, cold water has use, lukewarm, eh, not so great, right? What is going on here is he's using this as like a spiritual analogy. He's saying, hey, lukewarm has no benefits. People aren't pumped to go, oh, I can't wait to drink that lukewarm water. No, they go to the hot, the hot springs, the hot water, and he's saying in that there's healing, there's healing going on for spiritually hurt people. There's spiritual healing going on in the hot waters. And he's saying in the cold waters, the purpose there is spiritual refreshment, right? You're exhausted, you're burnt out, you need rejuvenation. Nothing like cold water. But you guys aren't accomplishing anything being lukewarm. So it's less about like spiritual temperature and it's more about just actually like works. It's actually about deeds. It's actually about a heart of, of what am I accomplishing in light of this belief that is actually providing fruit for people around me. So what, what Jesus is saying here is he's actually condemning their lack of works and witness and not just their spiritual temperature and passion like a lot of people think. He's saying, hey, you're, if you're either cold or hot, great, you have purpose, you're ministering to people, but if you're just in the middle, you're not doing anything, you're not making any different impact. And I, I just think about, um, I think about, like, their faith, and, you know, we know that they had been faithful to following Jesus in this town, like they were proclaiming Jesus, they were dealing with Jewish uh, opposition, they were doing it with the Roman people, and so they're really, really struggling, but it's interesting because I think their faith really, like, how do you get lukewarm? You have just such a sanitized version of faith that you just kind of, like, float in the middle, right? Because if you just let water sit, eventually it'll be lukewarm. That's just how it works. Like the temperatures in the air, everything just makes it lukewarm, right? It's never going to boil it in the sun necessarily. I've seen you, you know, I lived in Tucson. You could fry an egg on your driveway when it, in the summer, which was cool. But boiling water, it's not going to freeze it, right, unless you're in the tundra. If you just let it sit out in a normal day, it will be lukewarm. And you're saying that's what you have done with your belief. You're sanitized to the point where you don't really care, right? Like your faith is just so sanitized. It has no... No grab to it. And I was thinking about that um, as a dad because I was thinking about, like, moments that I care about Junia. And uh, she's famous for just, like, you know, any kid, like, eating stuff off the floor or just, like, finding snacks wherever. And, you know, I care a lot more when she is eating, like, an elevator Cheeto or a parking garage gummy, right, than if she just, like, opens up a new bag of pretzels and just starts digging in, right? I'm like, oh, cool, right? I'm, like, terrified of what's going on. And so, in the same way, these Laodiceans were so comfortable that they weren't, there was no, there was no, like, um, there was no worry about the people around them that needed Jesus. There was, like, they were so comfortable and apathetic and complacent. 
And that's what's happening to them. Now, you, the, the big question you kind of ask is, okay, well, like, how does that come to be, right? How do I become lukewarm? How do I become complacent? How do I not really care? And Jesus' next line explains it. And what is it in verse 17? It's wealth. It's wealth. Because you say, I am rich. He's quoting them. I am rich, and I have acquired great wealth and need nothing. Now, wealth here is unique. It, you know, it is money, but it's a lot more than money. In fact, it's, it's all-inclusive, right? It's like... Uh, it's not just financial, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual, it could be material, yes, but financial. It's just really, really just Jesus like wants none of it. He's talked about wealth a lot in the Bible. Jesus clearly is aware of the dangers of wealth. And I think in this instance, and it shows, wealth's most insidious deceit trajectory is just that you're more in control than you think you are. Like the more wealth that you accumulate, you think you're just more in control. Like you can grab life by the horns and do whatever you want because money because intellect, right, I can work any job, I can do whatever I want, I have financial security, I can retire whenever I want. Like, the more wealth that we accumulate, the more control we think we are. Like, the more that we think we can do whatever and nothing will actually harm us, right? I don't know if you know this is true, but if you had zero dollars in your bank account or 10,000, you'd feel a different way depending, I think, right? You'd be like, oh gosh, like, this Frosty at Wendy's is killing me, I got zero dollars. <laughs> like, you have 10,000, you're like, buy all the Frosties you guys want, right? It's on me. But it affects the way that you live life daily. And we know this to be true because if you've been in a hard situation, you've had to ask for money or you needed help or finance, whatever, like it's humbling. And you know you're not in control. And you have to actually depend on other people in that moment. And, and we don't really like doing that. Most of us are like prideful enough to be like, nah, I'll be fine, right? Like, I'll pay for my own things. Or, or if you're in that spot, you feel guilty because you're like, well, people are going to judge me because they're going to think I wasn't financially responsible. And maybe you weren't. Or they're going to think that I just want handouts. Or, or, or maybe you'll feel like you take it, but then you feel like you have to work to earn it back, right? To like get them back even, right? That's how we work. We rarely just accept like needing help. And it's, it's extremely unattractive as Americans. We don't want, like there's no attractiveness and dependence. And we don't think we look good with it. And this is the same thing the Laodiceans were struggling with in wealth. They had accumulated so much that they just thought, hey, like, we've done this, we're fine, we're not worried, we don't have any backbone to what we're doing because we're fine. Everything's fine. I don't need God. Like, I got money, I got, I'm, I'm smart and intelligent, we're in this city that's really prominent and well-known, we just rebuilt it. We, we don't even need any help, we don't need anything. God sent another earthquake, we'll just rebuild it, it's whatever. I'm not even worried about just natural disasters, we're fine. And it's just silly, and spiritually it's silly because America is just plagued with this. We have Christians who um, use the classic get out of jail free card, where it's like you raise your hand when you're younger or recently and you're like, I want to follow Jesus. And what you're really saying is, I want what Jesus has to offer when I die so that I can live the rest of my life not feeling guilty or scared. <laughs> and then you do nothing different in the rest of your life, right? You just kind of put the sticker on your car and you're like, I'm going to be good. And if the rapture happens tomorrow, I won't still be driving this car, you know? That's what we think. And, and, a, lot of, and a lot of people like proclaim that. And it's it's this idea that I can take what Jesus is offering and have no bearing on my life, which first century Christians, I think, would just kind of laugh at. Like, are you kidding me? Like, it's following Jesus. It's not just like believing there's a God. There's a complete difference there. Believing there's a God, I mean, anybody could, could conclude that from just the historical accounts of Jesus being a real person. But saying that it requires the life of me is a whole different conversation. And in this moment, they're just basically using it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. I believe in Jesus but it means nothing in light of my life because everything I've built is my own. It's myself. I don't really need, like nothing that he implies on me is going to affect the safety of my life. 
And not only this, this, it's one thing to be wealthy, it's one thing to be rich. It's another thing to claim that it was all on your own accord. Anybody know people like that? Like, not only is maybe that things are going well, but they're really proud of themselves, right? Like, a lot of, like, look at what I did. Look how I grinded. Look how I worked harder than everyone else. Look how smart I am. Look, whatever, right? Look how spiritually knowledgeable I am, right? And that's what these, that's what these Laodiceans were doing. Not only had they received wealth in lots of different ways, they were essentially bragging, thinking they had achieved it on their own standing, which is a very dangerous place to be. Essentially, they're like, I am my own God. I don't need God. And they might not be saying that outwardly, but they're believing it internally in the way they live their lives. Right? They're like, I, I'm just, I'm doing fine. I, I, God wasn't, it, was, it wasn't that he wasn't there, but like, I, I did that job. I worked that thing. I received all that money. I mean, it's, I worked hard for it. I deserve it. It's my own thing, and I'm fine. And then they, they live that way until something happens, and then it's a whole different story, right? But in light of that, they have deteriorated to being a church that Jesus is just like, you guys are not doing well at all. Now, I think about the story of, uh, there's a story in Luke 12 that Jesus talks about with this man. I want to read it. Uh, you can go there if you want, or you can stay. It's fine. Uh, we're not going to have it up on the screen, but I'll read it. It's in Luke 12, verse 13. It says, Then someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, what's Jesus? Tell my brother to defi- divide the inheritance with me. Jesus said to, to the man, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator between you two? It's like, this is not my job. Then he said to him, watch out and guard yourself from all types of greed, because one's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. That's good. All right, well, maybe we should explain that. Okay, all right, I'll explain it. Jesus says a parable, the land of a certain rich man produced an abundant crop. Remember, crops, right? If you know any of you, we we had a farmer. He he, uh, lives far out in um, near Marysville now, and he's no longer with us, did not die, just at a different church. <laughs> I, there's no way to say that, I don't know. He, yeah, anyways, so, uh, good for him, though. But uh, he was a farmer, and so whenever I talk about farming analogies, I always love to, like, clue him in. It's sad, I'm missing him right now in this moment. But when you farm, it's not up to you at the end of the day. Weather, and weather you don't get to pick. In fact, our weathermen, I hate to say mean things up here, but wow, they are so bad at predicting the weather. <laughs> and uh, if you're a weather woman or man, I'm really sorry. I just, I'd love to help you be better. I don't know how, but honestly, at this point, I think you can just guess at this point. Am I random? Am I not? 50% every day. Who knows? My patio furniture is ruined because of you, so um, I'm just kidding. Uh, Weather. You have no control. When you're a farmer, you plant stuff down, and you're like, Lord, help me get some rain here, get not too much rain. At times, I need it, but like, it's literally every day. It's a gamble. You don't know. And in the same way, this man had an abundant crop. Good for him. He didn't really do anything. Maybe planted the seeds, maybe tilled the soil. But at the end of the day, the crop growth is from weather, which is just out of our control. Even if you're not a Christian, it's not in your control. Then he says, what should I do? For now I have nowhere to store all my crops. Wow, great abundance. Look at me. What should I do with all my crops? I'm going to, he says in verse 18, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. And there I'll have, I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to myself, you have a pretty good amount of goods. You have plenty of goods stored up for many years. You know what? Relax. Eat, drink, celebrate. Anybody like have a dream to retire at 35? Anybody like this guy? You've been building big barns, cutting relationships, working too much, making ethical, sketchy decisions because you just want to make tons of money so you can be a present husband or father in your 30s, right? There's just weird. A lot of people are doing that, and, and this guy got it. And, Jesus, and God says, literally the next verse, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded back from you, meaning he's going to die. 
And, uh, but who will get what you have prepared for yourself? He spent all his time accumulating all his building his barns. He has no relationships in his life. Nothing, no legacy to leave, just stuff that will deteriorate as we know. So it is with the one who stores up riches for himself, but is not rich towards God. Jesus has been very clear about what wealth can do to us. Wealth is objectively not a bad thing. It's just a very hard bull to tame in our life. And you constantly have to tame it. It doesn't, once you buck it down, it will, it will go crazy again, right? It's like, um, it just does not stop. And so Jesus says this, and in the next line in Revelation, going back there, he uses five words to describe them, and they think they're rich, and he has five words to describe that they're not rich. I'm going to read them, and I want you to tell me how you feel about this. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. How do you feel about that? Anybody? Not good? Not good, right? Those are not like loving words for Jesus to say to me, Really intense words. That is the reality of wealth in our lives. And we're called out and we're reminded of this is our status. Now, if you don't like that, uh, I'm, I don't like it. It's in here. Um, but let's go through each word. Maybe each blow will be separately smaller than one cumulative five negative words together. The first one, wretched, just very bad, an unfortunate state, which we know we're sinners, that in sin requires distance from God because God is holy and sin is not allowed in his presence. So wretched is just a trajectory of sin, we are in an unfortunate state because sin is death. Pitiful, which we use as like a very derogatory term, but pitiful in this instance really just means need of mercy. So like it's, it's very condescending to say that they're pitiful, right? But in, in this instance, it's more about just like they are in need of mercy, right? They like, well, the, not their own fault, just, I mean, they're sinners, yes, but like sinners, humans are pitiful. We are in need of mercy. Now the next three are incredibly unique though. Poor, blind, and naked. Those are very intense, and they're also describing something that's going on. If you think back to when I was talking about Laodicea, what were the three things that were prominent in their city? There was the black wool, which was the tunics. There was the commercial banking. And there was the medical school, which was famous for taking Heropolis's minerals and making eye salve for your eyes. Poor. Jesus is saying, hey, your banking means nothing. You have no wealth, even though you think you do. It could just be all gone tomorrow. Blind, your eye salve you think is helping other people, but you need your own, right? Like you are just blind to what is going on in your life. Naked, your cool, famous coats of black wool, your Gucci, <laughs> means nothing. And, and I mean, literally, he's just like calling out every attribute in this town of what you think you're known for. I try to internalize this for Columbus, and I think Jesus just said, hey, Columbus, you think you're cool with your Chase Bank headquarters? Several, right? Isn't there like two or three Chase buildings in Columbus? And your Ohio State University, and your medical hospital, and your new one that's going to be built in like three more years, and all the cool things, the smart people that do medical procedures, and your L Brands, your clothing. If you didn't know, L Brands is in Columbus. Um, yeah, that was a chuckle. That's good. L brands. But it's funny. It's like, what are we known for? What are we brag about? It's like, whatever you think the city's known for, he's like, yeah, it's just like, look, it's just stuff. It's not really that important. You think you're rich, you're not. You're poor, blind, and naked. And so he's drawing in, in five words, probably the most intense, but also cutting statement to each of the hearts of these Laodiceans who knew, like, this is how we make money. This is what we built for ourselves. And he's just saying, hey, it's not, it's not, it's not taking you anywhere. But he doesn't stop there, right? If the letter just ended there, you'd be like, oh my gosh, what do we do? But he, he, 
turns it and he challenges them. He rebukes them, but he calls them into a confrontation of a challenge. And so the next verse, verse 18, he says, take my advice. Here's the good advice. Here's what you actually are. Here's what you should do about it. Buy gold from me refined by fire so that you can become rich. Because remember, you aren't. Buy from me white clothing so that you can be clothed and your shameful nakedness will not be exposed. Buy eye salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. First one, gold. Your poverty will be fixed by buying gold from you refined by fire, which basically just proves the trustworthiness, trustworthiness of what Jesus is saying. The gold refined by fire means what I'm saying is true. Just trust me. Trust my words are true. The world probably doesn't think so, but just trust me. The second one, your nakedness. Uh, nakedness is a sign of judging. Humiliation still kind of is today. If you walked around naked, people will probably be judging you. Um, but hey, like you're, you're actually naked. Your cool black robes are not cool, and they're not good, and you're naked. And so you need a white robe of righteousness, right? And only I can make you clean and white. Only I can make your sin go away. And then the third one is your blindness. You're just blind to the reality of what you're doing. Buy some of your own eye salve and put it on your eyes because you can't see. I think that last one's funny because there's a story of Jesus who heals a blind man and he heals him with his own eye salve and it's made of his own spit and dirt. If you remember that story, Jesus spits in the ground, makes a little paste, and he's like, here you go. And everyone's like, what is happening? You know? If it was like during COVID, everybody would have been like, this is ridiculous. You know? I'm sure they still thought it was ridiculous, let's be honest. But it's humbling, right? Like, what is more humbling than someone spitting in the ground, making dirt, and then putting in your eyes? There's nothing more. But if you're if you're at that point, you're on your knees, you're in desperation, you're like, Lord, make me well. You're acknowledging you're not well, and you're humbling yourself to the point of doing something ridiculous for the sake of healing. And he's like, put some of the eye salve on your own eyes because you guys are just full of it, and you're so disillusioned to your life. It's ironic, too, that he's saying buy because he just said they're poor. How do you, well, buy all these things, and then you'll receive what you want. Well, remember, they're thinking currency, buy from money, currency. Jesus, remember, the beautiful thing about the Bible and following Jesus is it requires no money at all. Some people think it does. It does not. You don't pay your way into heaven or different levels of heaven. We don't pay in wealth. What are we paying? It's really just acknowledgement, repentance. Because repentance, people say, well, that's, like, that's, a, that's a work. That's a thing I have to do, right? Like, that's, a, that's not fair because salvation is not given by works. But the thing about repentance is nothing is changing between what Jesus is doing. He's always loving us and always there. It's just our posture of if we're willing to receive it. It's not like if I turn to see Jesus, then he loves me. It's that he is always loving me, and I've chosen my own trajectory. I've chosen the things of the world that I think will accumulate the point where I just think I'm, I'm on my own. I'm fine. I'm self-sufficient. And Jesus is saying, that is ridiculous. You are wretched. You are pitiful. You are poor, blind, and you are naked. There's nothing lower. And the three things you need from me are things that I, only I can provide. And they are not bought with money. They are bought with an acknowledgement and a heart of repentance. And then he says in verse 19, All those I love, I rebuke, I discipline. So be earnest and repent. We don't love this. We don't love the idea that love can be rebuke and discipline. I remember one time in my uh, college dorm, all of my buddies, we'd joke about um, people's birthdays. We'd say, let's, like, let's give them a good two rebukes and an encouragement. Where just, I don't even know. We were weird. But it, it, we, one time we actually did on my birthday. I don't remember. I think it was maybe my 20, like the 20, 20th or 21st birthday or something. And I think it was 20th birthday. 
And we had this, like, you know, dinner or whatever for me. And we were, like, actually did it. I was like, you know, let's actually stop joking about it. Let's do it. Because it was just, like, a dumb Christian joke. Everybody was like, really? Do you guys do that? They did it. And it was terrible. I mean, I felt like trash going home. Because they, just the amount of rebuke compared to the amount of encouragement is hard. I mean, you have 12 people there. It's 24 rebukes. <laughs> and, and they made sure that none of them overlapped. You know, it wasn't like, yeah, I'll second his. Like, no, 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 I got a unique one for you, Trey. I don't like you. And they weren't just like, I don't like your hair. You're too tall. It was like cutting character flaws in my life. And, and, and <laughs> I'm still here, but I didn't invite them to my next birthday party. <laughs> Um, no, I haven't had a birthday party since I've been traumatized. You know. um, I just, it is kind of ironic that every year on my birthday we go on family vacation. So, um, so they, we did the, they did this, and, and of course there's 12, you know, 12 encouragements, right? But like all, all of the rebuke and, and things at the end of the day, about a week later, you know, I'm like, they're right. They just are. They're right. People have a beautiful way of seeing the things that you can't see because you are made with blind spots. And I think God did that on purpose because I think he thought, let's put all these people together and they'll make each other better. Because the last thing I want are self-sufficient humans walking around thinking they're actually self-sufficient when they're not. And now, maybe I do like a one-in-one, right? Like a one rebuke or one one encouragement. Or maybe like four people can rebuke and the rest encourage. I don't know. I'd rethink it. But Jesus is saying, look, if you want to actually be loved, you have to be willing to stand in be rebuked and disciplined when you're off. Because if you aren't, you're creating a version of me that is not real and has no implications on your life and at the end of the day has no backbone. And, and wealth is the, one of the cheapest ways that we think we actually are doing fine on our own. Because everyone around us affirms of us. Like, you ever think that? Like, oh, that person's wealthy. Oh, they must be brilliant. Or they must have worked so hard. Nobody's like, I bet they won the lottery, you know? Everybody thinks that person has significance in some way because they're wealthy. And it's just not true. It's just not true because it's so far out of their control. Yes, they can go to a good school. Yes, they can get a good job. But in a blink of an eye, any of that could be taken away. There's not a text message or a phone call that you can receive right now that would not change your life or decimate your life in a negative way. I'm not speaking that over anybody, but there's not a car accident, a job loss, and a, a fire I actually have a really good friend who their apartment caught on fire and they lost everything. And you might think, wow, that's really tough. Like, but like, like just memories. Your like, life feels like it's gone. It's a start all over. There's not any of those things. That are, they're out of, completely out of your control 100%. When you get in a car, even if you're a good driver, there's other bad drivers out there that will hit your car. You are not in control. And Jesus says, look, I love you. I want you to let you know this because I love you too much to not tell you. I'm not going to withhold the hard stuff, the rebuke, and the discipline because it will make you better. Sometimes we need constructive criticism, right? Sometimes we need just feedback that's helpful. There's different ways to give it, right? But Jesus here is not, he's not, he's not throwing out cheap shots. He grounds it in a deep love. And he says, I do this out of love. And what's interesting is the love that he's doing is really unique. It's, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis, not Chronicles of Narnia, not Mere Christianity, but the four loves, there's four different words for the word love. English people are lame. We use the same word for pizza and for our spouses. It's the same word. I love my spouse. I love pizza. They're very different loves, right? But... There's four in the Greek, and the most common one that Christians know is agape, which is like this unconditional love. It's only found in God. It's, it's unconditionally loving people who don't deserve it no matter what, and it's this beautiful word that we have. But there's another word which is actually used here, and it's rarely used. John uses it a lot, but no one else uses it really. It's phileo, and phileo basically is this tender affection. It's like this deep just level of relationship that, that is yearned for in phileo that, that is just beautiful. 
And not that God is not agape us, right? For God so agape the world, that's how it's written. But that in this moment, it's phileo saying, let me be as tender and affectionate as I can to the most terrible church that is here right now. Out of the seven churches, you are by far the worst. You are the most undeserving. I have given you the harshest words, but let me declare the kindest feelings I possibly can. So in the moment of the hardest rebuke and, and reproof and discipline, Jesus offers the deepest level of his heart and affections for them. And I want you to receive that today because there's probably things in your life that you've been running from or hiding from or trying to push aside that are significant um, sin in your life that you don't want to acknowledge or you're trying the whole positive, think positive game, right? Like just a better version of me every day. And, like, and there's actually like sin patterns in your life that you need to address. And Jesus is saying more lovingly than anybody else in the most intimate way that he can that you're wrong, let me help you. You're poor, blind, and naked and you're in need. Let me help you. And so the, 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 if you want to just sum up this whole thing, Jesus is disciplining the, this lukewarm church for prioritizing self-sufficiency over the opposite, which is dependent intimacy with him. It is very cool and popular to be self-sufficient. In fact, parents, that's like their parenting goal. It's like, I just want my child to be a member of society and not be in prison, right? Like, that's, that's like the phrase. And I'm like, isn't that just like so low bar? Do you love Jesus? Yeah. Do you love Jesus? Okay, so you guys are parents, you love Jesus, and you just want your people, your kids to just survive. That's like the end. That's all you want. And maybe you had parents who didn't even love Jesus, so then it's probably even lower bar. Or you had abusive parents, so it's like negative bar. This is, this is the reality of the world we live in. We've we got to want more. That, that self-sufficiency is, is not a sign of strength. Now, it doesn't mean that you just don't go get a job and you don't do your laundry. Like, those are good self-sufficient things, you know, when you're an adult. But that if we're living our lives in such a way that we think we are God, or we think we are God in these small moments, we are, we are kicking out the true God of truth, who is letting us know that we have no right to say that or to live in such a way that that's possible. So as I invite, I'm going to invite Nick up. Um, we're going to do, uh, as we close, I, want, I wanted to close with uh, the reality of, of the water in Laodicea. I think it's kind of fascinating. This town that had such wealth had terrible water, and there's a map up here that shows where the water pipeline was. It's like a, um, sorry, next one. Uh, yes, so there's Laodicea. There's the two Hierapolis and Colossae. So this is, the blue is like what they believe to be this like giant um, uh, stone, stone uh, pipe, which nowadays that would not cost, that would be a bit not cost efficient. But this stone pipe about like this wide, and that would carry all their water. And every day they come in wherever it would come out or at different places and they drink water, right? And think every day, great. Okay, you can go like three days without water, 48 hours, something like that. Like, nobody wakes up tomorrow in your apartment, in your house, wherever you live, and think, man, like, it'd be crazy if, like, everybody just, like, didn't have water. And, like, we'd last two and a half days. Like, maybe you have a lot of Costco bottled water in your, like, basement. But, like, you wouldn't la- and, then, and the people at SCA thought, we're great, we're rich, we're wealthy, whatever. In a matter of, of just days, they could be all gone. And, in fact, the pipeline would clog a lot. It was stone. It wasn't very economical. And... Water would, like, it, it would have problems. And if they didn't have the resources at the time or whatever to fix it, then they were in trouble. And they still probably believe, well, we have money. We'll make it work. We'll go to Colossae. We'll go to Hierapolis. We'll get, we'll get water wherever we need to. We can do it. We're rich. But I'm telling you, in any moment, in any day, things could end like that. And I, I just think about the idea of what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. He's like, look, you're not as stable as you think you are. Life is going to throw you punches that you are so far out of your control. And the only way you're going to survive is through repentance. It's through acknowledging the reality of that and letting me help you put 
my yoke on you. It's light and not burdensome, remember? And so when he's saying the word repent, and this is what I want us to reflect on as we have a time of reflection here, is the word repent here implies a decisive action in that moment. So they would read this to the church. They would read, like, right, and they're reading Revelation, and it's like, oh, wow, we got to do something about this. And he's like, don't go home and think about it. He's like, in this moment, turn from all your craziness <laughs> and your pride. Let other people be like, hey, I think, we're, I think we're going off course here. I think you're too excited about your black wool. It's not, it's not that important. We've lost our first love, right? And so I think for him and for us, I just want to ask a few questions I want to give us time to reflect in. Um, Ryan, you can put them up. Have I prioritized self-sufficiency over dependence in Jesus do I need to repent here and now of my pride, complacency, and sinfulness? If so, what specifically do I need to repent of? And do I need to be reminded of the deep love that Jesus has for me and his willingness to forgive my sins? So here's what I want to do. I went over a little bit. I'm sorry. It's been a while. I haven't talked in a while. Um, we're going to give you a few minutes, and uh, we have people in the back who would love to pray for you. I would encourage you to reflect on these questions, but I also would encourage you, if you have any bit of stirring of repentance, there's nothing more powerful than, than just processing it with someone else. And so if you came with a friend or a spouse or whatever, I'd love for you to just maybe talk with them and have them pray for you. I'm not saying you've got to just spill all your guts, right? But if you're just like, hey, I, I need to bring something before the Lord, would you pray for me? I want to encourage you in this time. We have people in the back who would love to pray for anyone. But if you're here with someone, you'd be more comfortable staying in your chair and praying. Uh, you can do that as well. And so, so we're, we're going to have time just for that next going to play. And we're going to have time for you to pray with each other. I would encourage you, just fill this room with prayers because at the end of the day, all Jesus wants is a repentant heart. And what he says in the end of this passage that I glazed over is he says, he says, listen, and if you turn from, I will, I will come back in your house. Like, I will have dinner with you. It, he, he is not the problem. Jesus has not stopped loving you. You've shut the door. And so would you open the door in repentance? Would you turn from the things that you know are destructive? Would you acknowledge your brokenness? And would you do that with someone that you trust beside you? I'll be up here too. I'd love to pray for you. Um, but if you'd just like to reflect on these questions, we'll have these up for a few minutes. I'm going to come back up and we'll all take communion uh, together. So if you want to just refrain from that for right now, pray with the partner, pray with someone in the back, reflect on the questions. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.